For years ago, there was a megachurch pastor from Atlanta, I won't say who, maybe you know who it is, who kind of went on a big preaching campaign, and I think he even maybe published a book about this, saying that Christianity needed to be uncoupled from the Old Testament. And I want to register, and I understand some of why he's saying that, but I want to register in no uncertain terms how preposterous I think that is. Okay? It's ridiculous. And let me give a couple reasons why. And these are the same reasons why it's so important for us to spend time in the Old Testament as Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says a few things. Here's one of them. Now these things, and he's speaking of Moses and all that happened with Moses, these things took place as examples for us. These things took place as examples for us. In the remarkable sovereignty of God, those events in which God moved in those people's lives were for them, but they were also for us who are sitting here some 3,000 years later. He says a little bit later in the same chapter, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Exodus and the whole Old Testament, including all the funny parts, weird parts, are Christian scripture. They are for us Christians. They were written for them, but also for us, uh, upon whom the end of the ages has come. The church grew for hundreds of years without a New Testament. All right, before the New Testament letters were compiled and distributed widely and bound in one book, Christians were preaching the Old Testament, preaching Christ in the Old Testament, right? In fact, one early church father called the New Testament or called the the New Testament sermons on the Old Testament. So let's go to the source material where Christ is presented to us first. Exodus, among other things, is about freedom and hope. And if we need a clarity of understanding of what freedom is today, uh, it's so important for us to be in this book. And then just one last reason why I think it's important or an illustration of why it's important for us to be in Exodus. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. Remember, he goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured before them and Elijah and Moses appear to him. And in verse 29 of chapter 9, it says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared to him in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The word departure there is the word exodus. Luke is telling us that the Old Testament exodus was pointing forward to an exodus that Jesus was going to bring about. But we can't understand fully what Jesus brought about without understanding the original exodus. Does that make sense? We've got to be steeped in that and learn to see him in that for us to be able to understand it in our lives. So we're going to dive right in, and I'm going to try, we'll see, to get through two chapters tonight. So Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All right, Exodus could be titled a number of different things, but one of the things that could be titled is Genesis Part 2. All right, Genesis, the rest of the story. Because there's all kinds of of ways in which uh, Moses is tying it to Genesis. 
First of all, we have this same similar genealogy at the end of the book of, Je- of Exodus. But there's a couple other things that I think are more interesting. Does this sound familiar? Fruitful, increased, multiplied, filled. What does that sound like? Does that remind you of anything? It should remind you of Genesis chapter 1. When God blessed the creation and he, in particular, various animals blessed them and they increased and they multiplied and they filled the earth. This is what God called his people to do in the beginning. And now his people are being blessed. They're multiplying. All right. So we should expect that God is afoot, that he's about to do something. And it's important also to note that this story is our story. The story of what God began in Genesis And what he continued through Abraham and what he continues through Moses and the Israelites is our story. We've been grafted into that story. It's the story of what God is doing to deal with what is wrong with the world. And so that story continues with us. Our part, we could say it this way, is to play our part and then die, should the Lord tarry. And it's interesting when Jacob and his brothers go down, who knows? I mean, they they had faith, the scriptures tell us. But it didn't look like much yet, right? Our job is to play our part and trust God that he is going to continue the story that he started long ago, that he's woven us into, and that he continues after we're, after, after we're gone. Amen? But, and this is the message, he blesses those who give themselves to his story. He blesses those who say, okay, thank you so much, God. I don't deserve this, but thank you for making me a part of what you're doing. Let me, uh, I want to give myself fully to it. Exodus 1.8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This, among other things, is Babel 2.0. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's all kinds of verbal connections to the Babel story. There's the account of making bricks. Uh, There's the the language of, if you remember in Babel, it says, oh my goodness, let us make bricks and build a tower that goes to heaven. There's all kinds of cues that the way the Babel builders were acting is the way Pharaoh is acting. He is taking more than he should. He is tightly controlling those people under him and exacting out of them all that he can get. He doesn't want to let them go and let them thrive on their own, all right? Ultimately, and this is one of the most important things about Exodus, is it's a criticism of power, all right? And it's meant to show us what people should do with power. If you look back at Abraham, what did he do with Lot, who in a sense was under him? He made him flourish. He gave to him, he imparted to him, he rescued him, but... Abraham used the blessing that God had gave him to make Lot flourish. And this is what authority is for. This is what power is for. And remember, there's all kinds of power. There's financial power. There's social power. There's all kinds of power. But the scripture is telling us that power 
is for making those that don't have it around you flourish and thrive so that they too can share in what God has given you. So Pharaoh exploits and controls and fears those who are under him and uses that fear as an excuse for wickedness and cruelty. So what does God do? He makes his people flourish. What does Pharaoh do? He makes them, he exacts from them. And in John 10, 10, Jesus said this, I have come that you might have life, everybody knows the rest, and have it more abundantly. But the thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Pharaoh is the thief. The builders of Babel's, Babel were in the spirit of the thief. Verse 15. Then the king, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I think that's funny. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, Pharaoh is not only acting like the, Babel, the, the builders of Babel, but he's acting like the serpent. Remember in Genesis, it said, God said to the serpent and to the woman, I will put enmity between you. And he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. All right? The seed of the serpent all through history has wanted to destroy children and destroy the flourishing of life. And so Pharaoh, again, is acting as a seed of the serpent. But all through Scripture, we also see this message that it is children through whom God is going to bring forth his purposes in the earth. Remember, remember Psalm 8, that God has ordained praise through the mouths of infants, right? To silence the enemy and the avenger. And then notice too, and you can't help but noticing this, the women in chapters 1 and 2, and we could also say chapter 4 of Exodus. They're extraordinary. Pharaoh is not named. Remember, Pharaoh is a title. These two midwives, they're named. Why? Because they fear God. Because they're courageous. Because they're shrewd in the defense of life and doing what is right. In fearing God and carrying out what is important to him. So they're named. But it's not just them. We're going to see through this section that we have Shifra, we have Pua, we have Moses' mother who also guards life. We have his little Moses' older sister Miriam. We have Pharaoh's daughter, and a little bit later, Zipporah. There's six women who are highlighted as being instrumental in delivering Moses, who will be the deliverer. All right? Exodus is celebrating this role that women play in fearing God, in being courageous, and being shrewd in bringing forth life. It seems like they lie, right? It seems like they just are creative with what they say to Pharaoh. Well, you yeah, know, the, the Hebrew women, they just have their kids like that. They're not like the Egyptian women. God honors them because they fear him and they protect children. And this is going to be crucial through all of Exodus. From in, in the book of Exodus, Israel goes from being a family, a clan, to being a nation. And they are called by God to be a nation of justice. 
a nation that protects life, a nation that protects the vulnerable and the oppressed. And we see that beginning as these women carry out the heart of God in all of this. And so Pharaoh goes nuclear. He says, fine, throw all the babies, the male babies in the Nile. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from among the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. First, it says that she saw it was a fine child. That's not a great translation. It says literally, she saw that he was good. And again, if you're paying attention to biblical rhymes and echoes, that should remind you of Genesis 1 again, right? God made, he spoke, he saw, he declared it good. He was delighted in it. So there's an echo there that something about Moses is specially appointed. That Moses, she's not just saying she was proud of her child. I think it's saying that she recognized that there was a special call on this child. And she understood that she had to protect him. Then we get another resonance with Genesis because the word that is used for the basket that she puts her son in is the word ark from the story of Noah's ark. It's not the same as the ark of the covenant, but it is the same as Noah's ark. And it's the only place in the Bible this word occurs in the story of Noah's ark and in the story here of Moses's deliverance. We have here the redemption of the coming redeemer. We have the rescue of the one who's going to lead his people in being rescued. And what's important is we're going to see what happens to Noah, excuse me, to Moses, is precisely what will eventually happen to Israel. He is saved through water. He then later goes into the wilderness and he meets with God on Mount Sinai. And that's precisely what he will then lead Israel in, being saved through the Red Sea, being brought out into the wilderness and meeting God at Mount Sinai to, have, uh, to meet him and make a covenant with him. And I think it's interesting in Scripture, you never, have you ever noticed this? You very rarely, I, I can't think of another place where you hear about a baby crying. All right, so it's not an accident here. Once again, Moses is crying. The daughter of Pharaoh has compassion on him. And that is precisely what God is about to do to Israel. Israel is God's son. Israel is crying out, and God is about to have compassion on them and deliver them. And then notice Moses' older sister. We don't know. She may have been something like six or seven. And I'm pretty sure that, that Hebrews didn't talk to the Egyptian royal house. Okay, in Egypt, some pharaohs, some of the royalty in Egypt never touched the ground. 
They were carried about. They only walked on sacred ground. And here's this little six or seven-year-old going, you want me to go get somebody to take care of the baby? She cared about her brother. She's just like her mom, or she's just like Pua and the, and the, the, the midwives. She put her life on the line, took a big risk, and her shrewdness, her courageousness, her audacity, God honors, and God moves the daughter of Pharaoh's heart. And notice, too, all of the delicious ironies that pile up in this story. First, she, Moses' mother did cast him in the Nile, didn't she? She cast him in the Nile, but he was saved by being cast into the Nile. His mom, this is my favorite, got paid to nurse him. That's got to be a first. Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter in his old household disobeys her dad to save a child. And then finally, this is maybe great, one of the greater ones. God said to Abraham that his descendants would plunder the nation that they were went into. Well, Moses begins to plunder them by being raised in their education. Okay, I don't think it's incidental that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household where he was educated in the best education of the Egyptians. God is going to use that education to make him, in part, to make him a great leader over his people. It's not just that education, but that education is crucial. Verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard about it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So here we begin to see what the deliverer is like. We begin to see Moses' character and his personality. And I want to suggest that this incident where he strikes down the Egyptian who is abusing, um, abusing one of his fellow countrymen uh, is not necessarily a total evil thing that we think it to be. I think it gives us a picture in Moses of his indignation at injustice. Okay, we're actually going to get three incidents, almost all in a row, in which we see Moses act to defend the wronged, act to defend the weak. He is a man of action. He is a man of justice. In Acts chapter 2, or excuse me, Acts chapter 7, verse 35, when Stephen is giving his speech, he says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man... God sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him. The irony again there is the guy said, well, who made you king over us? Well, God. He was being raised up as a deliverer over God's people. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of Israel uh, the people of God, and enjoy the, then enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses is beginning to identify, and, I, and the writers of the New Testament recognize this as something good in him, as a movement of faith, despite whatever may have been mixed in there with bad motives. So he is driven into exile. He goes to Midian. And by the way, Midian uh, and Ruel is a descendant of Abraham 
by Abraham's wife Keturah after Sarah dies. So this is a cousin. All right? These people, the Midianites, are cousins. And this partially explains why it seems that they worship the one true God. They're not polytheists. They're not pagans. They, he's a priest of the Most High God, and Moses seems to recognize that. And then we get the odd account of uh, Middle Eastern hospitality. Stranger shows up, welcome him into your home, let him live there, give him your daughter as a wife. Um, and Zipporah, his wife, is actually going to be very instrumental in saving his life in the very weird account of God trying to kill Moses in Exodus chapter 4. Stay tuned for that one. Um, but remember also this biblical theme. I can't, we can't have this scene without recognizing that the Bible has this repeated thing happen all the time. Abraham's servant goes to find Isaac a wife. After his long journey, he stops at a well, and at the well, he meets his master's son's future wife. Later, Jacob is on the lamb from his family. He goes to the same land, to the same well, and meets his future wife, Rachel. And here, Moses, after he's gone on a long journey to get away from some people, meets his future wife at a well. And of course, this all points forward to the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria um, that encounters Jesus. So, verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the, troughs, uh, filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home, their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so early today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. First, I want to point out that, as I've said, we begin to see this picture of authorities, and they are bad authorities. Uh, and these bad authorities, what do they do with power? They grab for themselves, and they oppress the weak. So we have Pharaoh, we've already seen. We have the taskmasters that he set over the Israelites. We have one of the Israelites who was wronging his brother, who Moses tried to intervene and address. And finally, we have these shepherds, right? These were male shepherds, and they were bullying the daughters of Ruel, keeping them from the water supply for their sheep. And again, Moses intervenes for the sake of the weaker. Moses, it says, he gets up and he saved them. And then he watered their flocks. So again, we get this picture of Moses as a man who is passionate about action. And Moses does what God is about to do for Israel. Right? God is about to get up. He's about to save his people. He's about to give them water. Uh, and Moses begins himself to anticipate what God is going to do. And then he has a son and he names him Gershom. He names him Stranger. He names him Sojourner. And this is really key. Moses is now in exile. I mean, he's kind of a double exile, right? Like he didn't get raised with his people. He was raised with the Egyptians. Then he goes and he's living on the lamb and he lives somewhere else. It's not his home. It's not his people. And he has a son and he calls him stranger. This is important because in the books to come, God will repeatedly tell Israel to love the stranger. And it's the same word. In fact, God says in Deuteronomy 10, 19, love the stranger or the sojourner, 
therefore, for you were sojourners in Egypt. Moses knows what it's like to be a sojourner. And therefore, he knows what it means to care for the sojourner. In fact, we might say that he even learned it somewhat from his Egyptian adopted mother, who he was a stranger and she took him in. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry of rescue for slavery, from slavery, came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Exodus, among other things, is about a God who intervenes and acts in history. He's not a myth. He's not a story. He is somebody who acted at a certain time and place with a certain people on their behalf to deliver them from oppression. And notice these words here. It's very much drawing attention to God's noticing this. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. Now for the Israelites, and maybe even for Moses, it didn't feel that way, right? It didn't feel like God had noticed. Maybe some of the Israelites were saying, where is God? Maybe even Moses was thinking, where is God? When is he going to do something about all these promises he made? But notice, and Carl shared this last week, that, and Kelly shared about it the week before that, when the disciples were in the boat, they thought Jesus had forgotten them, right? But what Exodus is teaching us is to have faith that God sees, God hears. God's going to do something about it. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 56, you put my tears in your bottle. Right? The psalmist says, I have cried and cried and cried waiting for you to answer, but I believe you've noticed. It's a very poignant way of saying God sees, he hears, he remembers. And God is going to deliver his people so that they can become a people who intervene on behalf of others. All right? He delivers Moses so Moses can become a deliverer. He's going to deliver his people so that they can become deliverers. Let me draw three Big thoughts out of all of these scriptures. I did it. I got through all of these two chapters. First, as I just said, we have a God who intervenes in history. All right? And Exodus is the story of him intervening on behalf of his oppressed people. And we need to see that the heart of God is a heart of compassion. He, he, he acts in his timing, but his heart is for his people. He intervenes in history. And that is why Exodus laid down the pattern for what he eventually did when he heard the groaning of the whole human race in slavery to sin and sent his son in time, in history, to deliver all those who would trust in him from the slavery, not just an outward slavery, not just that alone, but an interior slavery. God is a God who sent his son by the power of the Holy Spirit and our faith needs to be in the one who rescued Israel and who has rescued us from sin through his son, Jesus. Amen? And only that is the basis for us becoming deliverers. Israel had to just stand still and receive the action of God on their behalf. And that's what we're called to do before we become deliverers ourselves. But that does lead us to the second thing. Israel was called to be a just nation. Okay, and all the nations we've seen in the Bible so far have been oppressive nations. They've been nations who, who take from those who rule over them, who control them, who put them under their heel. 
But Israel is to be a nation of justice. And in the Bible, justice is not just not doing bad things. Justice is supremely acting on behalf of those who can't act. Taking action to rescue those who can't rescue themselves. Notice how the women exhibit this. Okay, these babies can't rescue themselves. But Shifra and Pua put their lives on the line to rescue these children. And of course, God gives them houses because they fear God and act. Moses protects the weak. He protects his brothers who are being oppressed by the Egyptian. He protects one Israelite from the abuse of another, and he protected uh, Ruel's daughters. The justice of the people of God that they are called to, the law that they are to receive, is using what we have for the sake of others, intervening on behalf of others, becoming a people of justice. And finally, the last thing I want to highlight is that Israel and Moses were people prepared. Now, Moses went into exile. He ran away, and I think God deliberately used that exile. I want you to imagine he goes from being in the capital of the world to the middle of the desert as a shepherd. He goes from being at the center of education and culture to being in the middle of nowhere for a long time. And God used that time to prepare Moses. God uses even those times when it seems like there's been a failure of what he promised us that we would do, right? I think Moses had this sense of, I think I'm going to be used by God to deliver my people. And there he's in the wilderness thinking, well, I, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe I missed it. God uses even and especially that to cause Moses to quiet himself. By the way, Moses is the most talkative person in the Bible, right? If you just want to, ch- if you just want to tally up Who gets the most words in the Bible? It's Moses. But Moses spends time in quiet, in preparation for all that talking. Okay, listening and waiting upon God. His time in the wilderness was absolutely essential for him. And I think that is a very biblical pattern, right? Jacob goes into exile away from his family, and God used the wrestlings of those times to prepare him to be a leader for his family. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, and God uses that exile and that slavery to prepare him to be a good leader. This is one of the most thorough biblical patterns. Moses is in exile to be prepared to be a shepherd over the people of God. And God allows exile in our lives to prepare us for more, to prepare us for authority, to prepare us to be able to lead well and rightly. He seems absent during those times. But as as Paul tells us in the New Testament, God can use all things for our good, right? Even those things that seem bad. And keep in mind, our good is defined by God making us someone like his son, right? Our good is not always defined by our definition of good. Our good is defined by him making us those who he can entrust with power who he can entrust with authority so that they will use it like he would use it. So God uses austerity in Moses' life. He uses family life. Here he is as a father. He uses his shepherding, which is both extraordinarily boring and extraordinarily dangerous in succession. He uses long stretches of time. And I think he used Moses there out in the wilderness a lot of that time just thinking, praying, waiting on God. And all the while, God was preparing to act and preparing Moses to act. 
So may we be a people who are absolutely rooted in the redemption that God has enacted on our behalf in Jesus. And may we be a people who then learn to become deliverers and allow God to use whatever kind of waiting, whatever kind of exile happens in our life to prepare us for more. God always wants to bring us on to more. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up. We're going to come to the